scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupts the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linens, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linens stand for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Bless the those who are invited to the wedding supper of the, of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Amen. Great to be back with you this week. Uh, last week I was out uh, down in San Marcos at our sister church there, and uh, I know Na- uh, Pastor Nathan did a great job here, and so I'm glad to be back with you here today in our series in Revelation. A couple of thoughts as we get started. Uh, if you're keeping score, you'll notice we've moved last week from chapter 4 to this week in chapter 19. So we've skipped over a big chunk of the book, and, uh, but it's like I told you uh, when we got started, if you were coming here, you were hoping for me to, you know, name the beast, or identify the Antichrist or tell you who the third toe or the fourth horn or the whatever creature was. You know, let me just say, I'm going to refrain from adding my name to the long list of well-meeting, Jesus-loving people who have uh, seen their personal predictions and prophecies fall flat over the centuries. And the reason they've really fallen flat is because of a failure to understand what this book is and what it's all about, what type of literature the book of Revelation is. Because what we read here in Revelation is a specific type of literature called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature has as much in common with poetry as it does with narrative. And so what you get here throughout the book, especially this chapter, is like a poetic story in a way. It's not all literal, like a poem isn't all literal, but it's all true, like a story is true. And so, But regardless, hear me, what you have read, what we read, will come to pass. All right. And second thought, most specifically, what will come to pass is, as that brilliant song from the 80s put it, The end of the world as we know it. The end of the world as we know it. Revelation describes the end of the world as we know it. And so for the next three weeks, I'm going to do sort of a series within a series looking at the end of the world as we know it and what the Bible has to say about the future, the end of human history, and what comes next. So what is at the end of the world as we know it? Well, of all things, John the writer here says there's a wedding. There's a wedding. A wedding is at the end of the world as we know it. You say, that's kind of strange. No, no, no. It makes perfect sense because think about it. A wedding is the end of one era and the beginning of another. It marks the end of a life of the bride and the groom and begins a whole new life, a whole new world. So 
What are we supposed to see about this poetic story John shows us? What's at the end of history? What's inside this wedding? Well, we're going to see what's there by looking at three images from this passage. First, we're going to look at the other woman. Second, we're going to look at the wedding itself. And finally, the invitation to the wedding. Uh, the other woman's going to show us what's wrong with the world. And before you get all worked up on some kind of gender bias, I'm going to explain what I mean. All right. Second, the wedding is going to show us what God has done to make the world right. And finally, the invitation shows us how we can be a part of that. So the other woman, the wedding, and the invitation. Here we go. Number one. Let's look at verse two. It says, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah. Again, they shouted hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So John, the writer, he hears this great cheer. It's like an ocean. It's so loud because the smoke, it says, from her has gone up. Who is she? Who is she? Well, it says salvation and glory, power belong to our God, true and just are his judgments. He's condemned, here it is, the great prostitute is corrupted the earth by her adulteries. So here, the people of God are shown cheering, celebrating the defeat of someone called the great prostitute. Who's that? Well, it's not really a person or a gender at all. It's more of a, an idea. You, you got to back up one chapter to see, but chapter before 18, we're told that the prostitute's name is Babylon. Babylon. And Babylon represents the height of what humanity is without God. Uh, represents, uh, Babylon represents all that's inside me, inside you, that, that resists God, that, that fights against the good, true, noble, and just. Babylon, in other words, represents the sin of the world. The sin of the world. And here we're shown that ultimately and finally, sin and evil have been defeated once and for all. And that's why the people are cheering. And that's amazing. 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 Made up a new word. I'm on a roll already. All right. What's even more amazing about this uh, is the language that's used to describe what's happening. Because what you've got to see is that everything... From front to back in this chapter is in the context of the language of intimacy, specifically sexual intimacy. Think about it. Who's being defeated here, right? What? The prostitute, the false lover. What is being ended? It says her adulteries. Can you, can you see what's happening here? Before, before the bride and the groom can come together at the end of the chapter, all other suitors, right? All other lovers, all other paramours, all other rivals, the other woman must be put away forever. And that other lover is not a lover, let me tell you, that's competing for God's heart. That other lover is something that competes for our hearts. And the other lover's name, again, is sin. And here's why this is so important to understand. Because all through the Bible, God is constantly saying, I don't just want to relate to you like a king, although he is that. All through the Bible, God's constantly saying, I don't want to just relate to you like a shepherd, although he is that. All through the Bible, God is constantly saying, I want to relate to you, to my people, like a bride does to a groom, like a a lover does to his beloved. He always says, I desire to have intimacy with you. I want to be one with you, your heart and my heart together forever. And so he's using here the language of marriage to show how much he wants you 
And he's using the language of the prostitute to show us what sin is, what competes for our hearts. And so I want to take a moment and I want to unpack this because if we don't get this, I don't think we're really going to get the power of what comes next in the chapter. And so I know this next bit, it may be a a little bit hard for you to hear, especially if maybe you're your first time guest or you just walked in, but we'll get through it and you'll probably like the next part better after that. All right. But still, this, this is so important to understand. Let me just ask this question. What does this show us what sin is? Sin is. Well, sin this shows us is two things. There's two kind of qualities of it. First, we're shown here that sin, what competes for our hearts, sin is pervasive. Pervasive. Look at this. It says he has, God's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted, what does it say? The earth. Now, notice it doesn't just say sins corrupted some individuals, right? Or those bad people in that other country, or maybe the people who voted for that guy, right? No, it says sins corrupted the earth. What does that include? Come on. Everything. Yes, sin's gotten into everything, right? It's like sand in your car after you go to the beach, right? You just can't get it out. It's pervasive. Now, we, as modern, uh, individualistic selfie-prone individuals, we're convinced of our innate goodness, right, in our culture. We we don't like this idea. We we, we balk at it, and we think we're inherently good, uh, like most of the British and American leaders did at the the outbreak of World War II. If you know anything about that time of history, uh, when reports of the Holocaust began to roll in, our nation, the, the British nation, their leaders, they couldn't, we couldn't believe what was happening, and especially, this is what history records, the the political left, political left. But after the war, this whole generation is fascinating of specifically white liberal thinkers abandoned that line of thinking and they became shockingly theologically conservative. I'm going to show you one in a second. And the list of these people, it's almost endless, but here's one example. Uh, The British author of Lord of the Flies. How many of you guys have read that book? Read that book? How many of you have lived that book? I've lived that book. I've got three, I've got three boys all just a year apart. Like the last dozen years of my life, I've been Lord of the Flies, just trying to survive. But here's why William Golding said he wrote this book. Quote, he said, the overall intention may be stated simply enough. Before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of social man. But after the war, I did not because I was unable to. I had discovered what one man could do to another. I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. This evil was not done by the headhunters of New Guinea or by some quote-unquote primitive tribe in the Amazon. It was done skillfully, coldly, by educated men, doctors, lawyers, by men with a tradition of civilization behind them, to beings of their own kind. And I came to believe that man was sick, not exceptional man, but average man. I believe that the condition of man was to be a morally (laughs) diseased creation. Tell us how you really feel, William. And that the best job I could do at the time was to trace the connection between his diseased nature and the international mess he gets himself into. To many of you, this will seem trite, obvious, and familiar in theological terms. Man is a fallen being. He's gripped by original sin. His nature is sinful and his state is perilous. I accept the theology. Look at that. Accept the theology and admit the triteness. But in this case, what is trite is true. Yeah. In other words, he's saying 
sin's pervasive, right? He says, no amount of education can keep it out. No amount of money can keep it out. No amount of culture can keep it out. And as a matter of fact, especially many times, education and money only make sin worse. Because think about it. Who brought the Holocaust into the world? If you were a Christian, if you read your Bible, you could have like predicted it. Wealthy, powerful, educated people. Why? Because if the moral center of a person is not renewed by Jesus Christ, all the education, all the power, all the money in the world do is just to throw fuel onto a fire that comes pre-lit in the heart of every human being. Wealth, power, education don't cure sin. They can only redirect it. And in many cases, inflame it. See, sin's pervasive, right? This thing, it's corrupted the whole earth. But first, sin we're shown here isn't just pervasive, it's also, and here's the word, it's also described as promiscuity. Promiscuity. It says, he's condemned the great prostitute who's corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Now, why would sin be compared to this? Well, think about it. Think about a marriage, okay? Uh, for those of you who are married or want to be married, in which the husband was gone all the time. Uh, traveled the world with another woman, spent hours telling her his most intimate secrets, his most intimate thoughts, opened up his heart to her about his deepest hopes and longings. The two of them became uh, unfathomably close, thought about each other every waking moment, but they never physically consummated the relationship. Now, what if his wife complained about the relationship? Do you think he could legitimately say, what? It's no big deal. Listen, I provide for you. I've never slept with her. What's the big deal? Well, come on. You know, you know what the big deal is, right? While he's never technically slept with her, he has, in a way, been unfaithful. Because what was the vow? Right? I mean, most married couples say it. They, you promise, you say, I promise to keep myself, what? Only for you. Myself, only for you. Now, what about the reverse? What if one of the, the spouses, in this case, a wife, right, with no real cause, habitually, uh, purposefully denied her husband her body? Would that be the kind of marriage anybody hopes for? Well, of course not. Why? Because marriage is more than cohabitation, just hanging around, and it's more than contact, right, physical connection. It's everything. It's an exclusive relationship. And anything, the point is, that breaks the exclusivity of the relationship also, at the same time, breaks the spouse's heart. See, when the exclusivity becomes broken, so does the relationship. And now, can you see why the Bible talks about, defines sin as promiscuity? Because sin doesn't just break a rule, it also breaks God's heart. Let me ask you, what do you love the most? What do you love the most? You can tell what you love the most, but what makes you the angriest or the most upset or the most fearful? Why? Here's why. It's because when you go to bed with your career, the fruit of that intimacy usually is workaholism, right? Destructive patterns. When you go to bed with drawing your meaning uh, from everyone liking you, the offspring is insecurity perpetually. When you go to bed with a a political party, the result is anger when your party isn't in power or self-righteousness, maybe, when it is. See, the point is, all intimacy produces fruit, and spiritual intimacy is no different. But the fruit of intimacy with God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Sin is promiscuity. Not just breaking a rule. This is showing us it's breaking God's heart. So here, Revelation 19, the people of God are rejoicing because his judgment upon evil and sin has finally come and sin is being burned out of the world once and for all. That's number one. Number two, some of you are saying, thankfully, it's about time. All right. Now, what else happens here? Sin's burned out of the world now. The other woman's put away now. There can be the wedding. John hears the saints cheer. Hallelujah. The Lord our God reigns. Let us rejoice. Be glad for the wedding of the lamb has come. Now, right away, if you're not familiar with Revelation, this is getting weirder and weirder. As in like, you know, dude, you Christians are celebrating an animal getting married. You know, what's an animal doing in here at all? Can an animal even get married? You Christians are so strange. Oh, but remember, Old Testament plus New Testament equals revelation. And this is a, a callback. This is like an old school DJ sampling of the book of Exodus. John's picking up, putting on the record table. Uh, in Exodus, an, an animal, a lamb, was, uh, was sacrificed to remove the sin of a family. And everyone in, in the land of Egypt, back in the book of Exodus, who had this blood from this lamb on, on their doorpost of their home, they would pass through the judgment that God was bringing on Egypt in one time and one place. See, the Lamb of God took away the sin of a family. And if we'll hold that in our minds, in the Old Testament, flash forward to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, we'll bring two things together, we'll understand why the saints are singing here. So, flash forward, Gospel of John, chapter 1. Jesus Christ, now he, he begins his public ministry, he shows up on the scene in Israel, and his cousin... Follow me. John the baptizer, when he sees him, John shouts out this line. He says, look, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away, it says, not the sin of a family, but the sin of the world, the sin of the world. Here is, he's saying the real lamb, like a, like a human lamb come to save us. So the lamb shows up in John chapter one. And where does this human lamb, the lamb of God go first? Chapter 2 shows us. He goes to, of all places, you guessed it, a wedding. The lamb goes to a wedding. Chapter 2. Jesus performs his very first miracle in a place called Cana. And have you ever wondered, by the way, if you you invited Jesus to your wedding, what he might do? Well, here, you're going to get an idea of it. So Jesus goes to a wedding. Uh, The bride and the groom, likely in their teens, they got married young. Uh, They've run out of wine at the party. Uh Uh-oh. Major faux pas, even worse then than now, your reputation won't recover. And when their folly is discovered, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him. He, she finds him, and she says this, and you've got to love this. She says to Jesus, again, the lamb at the wedding, she says, Jesus, they have no more wine, which means one of two things. First of all, Jesus, I never even got a glass, right? I mean... <laughs> Or what's more likely, I think, as she's saying, you know, wink, wink, uh, nod, nod, Jesus, you know, now's the time. There's a bathroom. Go put on your cape costume. Assemble, <laughs> assemble the Avengers, and, which is really only yourself, so go assemble yourself, right? And go use your power to fix this. But look at Jesus' strange response, the lamb's response at a wedding. He says, he says something here which gives away what he's really thinking. He says right back to her immediately, woman. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Lord. 
Some of you are like, he wasn't from my family, right? <laughs> Woman, my hour has not yet come, right? Not okay, mom, or yes, ma'am, or whatever you say, right? No, he says, Woman, my time, literally, he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, whenever Jesus uses the term hour in John's gospel, he's referring to the the time, the hour of his death. That's what his hour is. He's talking about his death. So catch this. His mom says, hey, they need wine. Jesus says, I'm not ready to die. That's what's happening. Talk about your old time, you know, like non sequiturs. It doesn't make sense until you consider who Jesus was and where Jesus was. Where was he? Come on. At a wedding. Who was he? Single person. A single man. What do many single people do at weddings? I'll tell you what I did when I went to my friend's weddings. I remember as a single person at my friend's weddings what I did. I would think about my future wedding. I would think about what my wedding one day would be like. Who, who would she be? What was she like? Have I met her already? Who's going to be there, right? What's my wedding going to be like? See, in the middle of my friend's joy, I would think about, daydream about, my future joy. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here, except with a twist. What's the twist? Well, he shows you he's not just thinking about his own wedding. He's thinking about what his wedding is going to cost him. Was wedding going to cost? Well, what does wedding cost him? He shows you his own life, his death, right? It would cost him his own life. That's why he says what he says to his mother. Woman, he says, it's not my hour. It's not my time to die yet. But one day it will be one day I will have to die to bring my bride to my own side. And he did, right? Jesus Christ, the great bridegroom, came to us, his bride, his people. But like an unfaithful spouse, What did humanity do? We turned away. We became intimate with false gods, fake gods, in the face of perfect and sacrificial love. And instead of acknowledging the intimacy we could have, we settled for it on our own terms. We wanted whatever lovers we wanted, whenever we wanted it, instead of choosing his exclusive offer of forever love. And the great bridegroom was put to death, right? By the very ones he came to bring to himself But Jesus Christ, he didn't stay dead. We've already sung it. He rose. And because he has risen now, he's paid the price to redeem us all. And now, 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 the other lover, the other woman, in a way, can be put away from our hearts for forever. forever. And because of all of this, now, back to Revelation, because they've seen this. Now, this is happening. What Jesus sort of foreshadowed in John is happening for real forever in Revelation 19. And the saints are cheering because they see the worthy groom step up to the altar. It's really happening. See, they're not just cheering the end of evil. They're cheering the beginning of a new era, of a wedding. Now, as a pastor, I've been privileged to do uh, countless weddings. I get to see all kind of people and all kind of weddings and all kind of styles. And one of the most powerful weddings I've, I've ever done was one I did recently for my friends named Shad and Caress. Now, they're on vacation today. They're not here. But uh, at most weddings, and you know this, rightfully so, the bride. She's applauded, right? People stand up for her. She's cheered. She's adored. And rightfully so. And that certainly happened at this wedding for that bride. Uh, But this was maybe the only wedding I think I've ever been to where something equally amazing happened for the groom. 
Uh, there we were on the stage right here where I'm sitting now. There we were, the, the groom, uh, the room was full. And, and what was even more amazing was like, the, the, if you were there, a handful of you were, the, the stage was full. There was like 20 groomsmen, like the biggest wedding party I've ever seen full of, you know, my friend was a former college football player. A bunch of his, you know, yoked up dudes, the Swole Patrol was right here on stage. It was just, you know, big and tuxed out, tuxedoed out. And they were all there. And when my friend Chad, when he came out onto the stage, when the groom came out, the whole audience began to cheer. All the groomsmen began to applaud and cheer. I've never seen anything like it. And I'm sure some of you right now, you're wondering like some of them were, well, why in the world are they cheering for the groom? But if you know the story, and of course every wedding has a story behind it, they would know. Over the previous few years, my friend had had a, a series of significant battles with his health, with his body, in all kinds of ways. His future as a minister had been in doubt, his relationships had been in doubt, his finances had been in doubt. And when he got engaged, some of his friends, uh, family members were doubting him the whole time, but he persevered and he won her heart and he won her hand. And now in the light of all of that, his moment had come the wedding and the audience cheered and I started to choke up a bit. Why? Because here was a worthy groom, right? He had defeated all his enemies in a way, and now he's about to begin a brand new life forever. Now, that's amazing, but do you know something even more amazing, I think? By using the language of a wedding here, and the wedding metaphor, the Bible's telling you this. Whatever love you're looking for, single or married, whatever love you're looking for in the arms of another person, that's but a dim hint of what it means to fall into the arms of Jesus for forever. Single or married here, and by the way, in the church there's to be no favoring of one or the other. Married people aren't more deserving, right, uh, of being married or more full of Christian character, right, uh, than people who are single. As a matter of fact, I've known terrible people who have gotten married. (laughs) And amazing people who haven't ever, though they've wanted to. See, being deserving in a way has got nothing to do with it. But single or married, let me tell you, this is telling you that the love you're looking for can only be found in the heart of Jesus. Like the greatest husbands, Jesus has laid himself down for us to bring you to himself all for love. It was a novel made into a movie a few years ago. Maybe you, you've read it or maybe you've seen the movie, you read the book. It's called Captain Corelli's Mandolin. It was about finding love in the shadow of World War II. And I love this conversation. It's a father giving advice about love to his own daughter. And the father is speaking to her, telling her what real forever love looks like. And he says this. The father says, love is not breathlessness, not excitement, not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. That is just being in love which any fool can do. Love itself is what is left over when being in love is burned away. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew toward each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. What does Jesus' love come to do, huh? When the blossoms have fallen, when the end of the world has come, when all the smoke clears literally from history, he's come to make out of two one. First, the other woman shows us what's wrong with the world. The wedding shows us what God will do to make it right. But there's one more thing in this passage. This passage shows us the way into what God has already done. Number three, there's an invitation here. And aren't you glad, right? Uh, Like all great weddings, this one, by the way, has an invitation. Verse nine, it says, then the angel said to me, write this 
Write it down, man. It's an invitation on paper. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In other words, there are those who are invited, but, oh, but do you know who gets in? It's not actually who you might think. Look at this. It says, for the wedding of the Lamb is come, and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's Holy people. All right. This is a this is strange vision. Hang on. Follow what's going on here. To come into the wedding feast, right? To come into the, the wedding supper means to be united with Jesus. And though there is but one bride, yet many people make up this one bride. Because look at what the bride's wearing. It says the righteous acts of who? Well, lots of people. God's holy people. There are many people making up one bride. All right, making making one bride. And by the way, men don't get nervous about that. All right, uh, over in Galatians, it calls women the sons of God, and the reason for both terms is because they're describing a particular kind of uh, uh, status, a way of relating to Jesus. Sons in that culture were the pinnacle uh, of that culture. It was a way of, in a sense, of upgrading a woman's in that day, you know, lowered status. It was gender elevating, and in the same way, the bride is supposed to challenge the way men we think about ourselves. You just need a little imagination. But look at who gets in here. This is consistent with all the parables of Jesus. It's those who are wearing a kind of wedding dress, a kind of wedding clothing. Why would the one who makes it in be dressed in something? Well, think about it. Well, what does a wedding dress do? Come on. It upgrades whoever's wearing it, right? It's designed to cover flaws. It was a little bit there. No, nope, you look better now. I mean, there was a sitcom episode I watched where uh, these, these two women in the sitcom episode, uh, they thought they looked so beautiful in wedding dresses. They each went out and bought one just for fun, right? They're sitting there. They're, they're hanging out eating cereal, you know, in their wedding dresses on the couch, eating popcorn, watching TV in wedding dresses. They're playing games and playing catch, just wearing wedding dresses. Why? Because the dress makes anyone who wears it look better. I mean, it can even make a person like Dennis Rodman, if you remember that old Sports Illustrated cover, right. Make even Dennis Rodman look good. Those who make it in are wearing something, a dress, a kind of clothing. But how do they get it? How do we get it? Do they shop for it? Have they earned it? Have they purchased it? Have they even made it themselves? No, it says the dress, the clothes, look at this, have been given. Fine linen, bright and clean was what? Given her to wear, meaning all those who make it in are those who have received God's covering for their sin by grace, sheer grace alone. You can't earn, you can't earn your way into God's kingdom. You can't buy your way in. You can only receive it. And if you're here and you're saying, listen, I'm fine today because I'm a good person or I try really hard or I do my best. Let me tell you, this is showing you, sorry, you're the one who doesn't make it in. Because you've never received the gospel. You've never been clothed in what God alone can give you. Which means this. It's the humble who make it in. Those who say, I cannot be my savior anymore. I refuse to be the Lord of my life any longer. The night that I became a Christian, it was uh, was February 26, 1995. It was a Sunday, as you'll recall. Um, 
freshman at the University of Houston. Uh, in every sense, listen, I had every right to think I was already a Christian. I've been raised in a church, raised in a Sunday school, uh, raised in a pew, raised in a private Christian school where I learned the Ten Commandments, the Twelve Apostles, the Nine Fruit of the Spirit. That wasn't in my notes. I quoted it from third grade, all right? You've already heard that. I went on the mission trips. I sang in the choir. I was infant baptized, confirmed. But by the time I finished high school, my heart was all but gone from God. And on one hand, I knew God existed. Probably like some of you, you know God existed. But my life was characterized by lust, pride, selfishness, ego. That night I became a Christian. I was literally playing on stage in the Christian band. I was wearing a real men follow Jesus t-shirt. <laughs> wearing a cross ring from James Avery that my pastor's daughter's girlfriend had given me. Doesn't get any more externally Christian than that, right? 200 years before that night, there's a man by the name of John Wesley. He described my spiritual condition. He preached a sermon and he said, really, you know, there's, kind of, there's two real kinds of people who come to church. He says, there's almost Christians... And there's all-together Christians. Almost Christians, all-together Christians. I was an almost Christian. He says, you know what the defining and damning characteristic of an almost Christian is? He said, it's sincerity. Sincerity. Trying real hard. Knowing the information or facts. But listen, no one could have told me otherwise I wasn't a Christian. But deep down, I wasn't an altogether Christian. I never allowed the roots of the gospel to come in and make out of two one. Never allowed the, the grace of Jesus to cover me, to surrender to his holy love. And in a moment of irresistible grace, what it was for me, I felt the supernatural hand of God reach out to me. It changed me. I repented of my sin, became new. All things became new for me. See, his invitation went out and his invitation goes out to us today some of you've never responded to it you're an almost christian you're coming around let me encourage you today that invitations for you rsvp to the wedding of the lamb become one with jesus today today can be your day